I grew up in a country where we wouldn't say certain things at, at, you know, in public that we could say at home. And I moved here and we're like, I'm the last person who would bash America. Okay. Just let's start there. I'm a big fan and I love my new home and I don't want to sound ungrateful. However, we do this. A lot of people do this and it's a problem because it's, it's destroying your soul. It, it's really hard to maintain personal integrity. Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Sense and Signal podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Daniel Tarker, and I come from the world of higher education, which is the lens I'm going to be bringing to this conversation. And I am here with my co-host. Uh, Joda Jensen, and um, I come from the world of product development, product leadership, and that's the lens um, I shall be bringing to this conversation as well. And we are delighted to be here with our guest, Hannah Gala, who is a faculty member at South Seattle College in the business and management programs focusing on hospitality. And she is also an executive leadership coach and a consultant for Leadership Associates, which is an international leadership consulting group. So Hannah, we are so happy to have you here. Welcome to the Sense and Signal podcast. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start off with, uh, wow, maybe it's a softball question. Maybe it's a hardball question. Who knows? But is leadership situational? All right. So (laughs) I believe that everything is situational. Everything in life is situational. We, We are and we respond in relations to our own experience and the context of each situation. In that sense, you know, your leadership needs to be based on not what you learned in business school and or what somebody told you, but what is the actual situation of your team? One of the things that we talked about with my students is how come you have these CEOs who thrive in one company and then they are transplanted to another company and they fail miserably? And the answer is because it's a different company. And, you know, it's so self-explanatory and, and yet we fail over and over to recognize the complexity and uniqueness of each team and how we mesh together. So I think that It's funny because this is a podcast where you also talk about leadership and it sounds almost as if I'm saying, well, there's no way of learning how to teach, you know, how to lead in, in all situations. And that's not true either. Right. But I mean, there, I'm sure there's aspects of leadership that are generalizable to all contexts and that there are certain types of leadership that are you know, specific to certain types of, you know, and I think in early leadership research, they found that, right? Like early in the early 20th century, they looked a lot at just traits and what personal traits people had, or maybe physical traits. You know, you had the whole great man mythology of leadership. And, you know, they found over time that that could not be true because what it takes to be effective in a military situation as a leader is completely different in a, in wall street or in a operating room or, you know, in a hospital setting or in a, in a hospitality setting, uh, which is the context in which you teach. 
Yeah, this is right. And I think what, what I, um, would like to also kind of emphasize, I come from the world of hospitality of hotels and restaurants and, and oftentimes students who are interested in my program and, or who are going through the program would think, well, this is focused on hospitality. And my take is sort of to quote uh, the great um, and and revered uh, hero of hospitality world, Danny Mayer. He's the CEO of the Union Square Hospitality. So he's the guy who sort of, um, he wrote a book, um, Setting the Table, and, and has been behind some of the great successes. So the Gramercy Tavern in New York, he's the founder and CEO of the Shake Shack, wildly popular franchise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Denny Mayer is one of the people who, um, who came up with this phrase that I repeat and steal and repeat again. Um, when he says, everybody is in hospitality business because we, the hospitality, the true hospitality is basically knowing that, and I'm quoting him again, the other person in the transaction, the person on the other end of the transaction has your best interest in mind. That's hospitality. That's the essence of hospitality. And if you think about it that way, what we teach in my program is completely transferable. And, and I think that, that, that part is, is super important and is more important now than ever before. Because as you said, originally we had all these, management approaches and techniques that were fit for a factory floor for people who, you know, like the back in the thirties, forties, and that's no longer the case. We don't really do manufacturing or not um, in any shape or form the way it was done before. And so most people are in organizations for which those management approaches are completely inappropriate. In fact, not to hug the mic, you know, for too long. No, but no, no. Thinking about hospitality, what I really love about the my field, and I don't know if you can tell how passionate I am about this, but oh, it's coming through. Yeah. <laughs> hospitality is fascinating because I love etymology, and I always look at the the sort of uh, origin of words and how yeah. Know they came to be and and what is the meaning behind the meaning, and hospitality or host um, you know goes back to um, xenos and xenia in Greek, and xenos is a word for a stranger, and xenia is a word that is best translated as institutionalized friendship, and oh. essentially what you get is when you kind of forget everything you know about today and go back 2000 years plus in the time of, you know, polytheistic societies and people believing that gods walk around, you know, and, and mingle among us, they, the hospitality and treating your guest was a huge deal, like way bigger than it is today. And yeah, the gods would smite you if you didn't do it correctly, right? You'd get turned into a cow or a, a, a swine or something, right? Yep. And what's interesting is I went back and started started looking into the history 
And one thing I found is the, the physical safety was of paramount importance. And like, that was the absolute must. And in fact, the guest who would knock on your doors would be offered food and bath or, you know, whatever. And only after the guest was fed and, you know, um, clean and clothed, you were allowed to ask where they're coming from. So that physical safety had to be taken care of first. And when you fast forward to nowadays, very often what's happening is we know this neuros, you know, neuroscience tells us that in order to have a good interaction between the leader and the team and or the organization or people just working together, that physical safety needs to be, you know, there. And I think that's just so fascinating how, you know, it, so I don't want to go too long, but, but again, to me, the hospitality is really great field because so much we have been doing for centuries and so much of what we know about interacting with a guest is now kind of rediscovered and, and confirmed by neuroscience, but also a lot of companies are now taking it um, sort of adopting this approach that, you know, your coworkers are your internal guests. Like that's the, that's something that hotels started doing like in the nineties. Right. And, and I find that um, fascinating. It's yeah. Know, it's, it, I, it, I, it, in my field, we're starting to look at internally, I think, and I think this is related. We, we start looking internally at the people we work with as, as customers. Um, our various teams are customers. And I don't think that's a far leap to think of them as, as um, uh, something like in the hospitality industry, you know, it's, it's, you want to have your customers be happy and, 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 and I think that's a, that's a, that's a fantastic methodology or a mental model to approach. Um, it kind of I reminds have, me of servant leadership too, right? The idea of, of you're in service to other people. So, Hannah, this is—I mean, we're we're definitely going to deep dive on some of this more. But before we go, that I I don't want to learn about you at the end of this show. So, let's can we frame this because there's a there's obviously a relationship for you with the the philosophy of of hospitality, what that means, and and the relationship to leadership probably as well. And those things are tied more intrinsically than probably the average person might consider them to be tied together. But why, why are you so uh, emphatic about this? What is it? Why are you so impassioned about this? How'd you get to where you are right now? Um, um, speaking to the things that you're talking about today. It's a, it's a convoluted uh, journey. I can tell you that. We love convoluted. Um, <laughs> I, just, I was just convoluted just a second ago. So, yeah, uh, so we're all about convoluted. Be, be as convoluted as you need to be. <laughs> we'll make sense of it later. <laughs> I'll give you. I'll give you a drive-by, and um, and tell you that I. Uh, it's funny the 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 older I get, the more I recognize how certain patterns, you know, form, and certain patterns of behavior form so early. And the more I study, and I had a chance to study with some uh, fantastic. Um, authors and, 
and um, sort of gurus, uh, especially in the neurobiology field. Oh, nice. And, and it's just like the, the, the whole concept of nature versus nurture is, has been really fascinating for me because as just anybody in 21st century, I'm very introspective and I like to not to navel gaze, but I like to kind of look back and see, Oh, okay. That happened. And that's what led me here. Um, because I am all about storytelling and I think that's a fascinating story and we should probably talk about sense making next. But, um, I grew up in the communist Czechoslovakia and I was born in mid seventies there. And that really had a huge impact on, on me, obviously. I was, um, a teenager when the country went through the, um, you know, the Berlin Wall fell and the country went through a um, peaceful but revolution, nevertheless. And um, and being in the center of that tectonic shift and a huge change and sort of noticing how that played out for me, but also for the generation of my parents who many of them felt like that came too late. There's just like so much around this. I, um, I studied political science uh, because of that, I'm pretty sure, and uh, international relations. And uh, I started in applied research. So I worked with um, several intergovernmental organizations and I did applied research. And, you know, I would drop in a country and do some policy, you know, material, uh, data collecting and, and, and writing policy analysis. And, um, it's, you know, sometimes the governments were like, Oh, this is great. We will follow your recommendations. And sometimes they were like, Ooh, this is, we understand this is the <laughs> way we're not going to do that. Um, we're not going to, um, not have the Russian, you know, uh, army at our borders. What are you talking about? Uh, we have to, that's, uh, <laughs> I did. The Ukraine uh, should have listened to you. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and then, and then I, um, I got a burnt out. Uh, I burnt out largely because of the politics and also uh, for other reasons. I, I had this feeling that I'm not making a difference. And, you know, that could be foolishness of my youth, whatever it was, but I just, I needed to do something. I wanted to do something with more tangible um, outcomes. And mm. I, by chance, um, transitioned. Somebody, somebody was, I was in, uh, in, in Ukraine at the time, actually. Oh, interesting. I lived in Kiev for two years. And oh, wow. um, I, I, um, I met this woman and she said, well, you know, they're opening a new, like the first five-star hotel or four-star hotel in the city and they need a lot of help um, from people who can, you know, and it wasn't necessarily my, my background in political science that, that got me there. It was the personality. I was like, I can do anything. I want to do something. I want to be in business. I want to understand how operations work. And and so I worked there and it was a Hyatt property. And so I, I worked uh, for the opening and then after they opened. And when I moved to um, 
me and my uh, then uh, fiance or husband at the time, maybe when we moved to Seattle, I continued with the company and they were, you know, nice enough to give me an interview and then hire me here in Seattle. And I, I spent several years working in operations and I loved operations. I, I just, you know, you give me a team of, of 80 uh, housekeepers from, you know, Cantonese, China, and I'm, I'm going to be in heaven. Just like it's, it's, I, I loved the operations, front desk, housekeeping, all of it. It's just, I, I thought that was such a. What great- do you love about it? What, what drew, what, what about operations gets you excited? So I think that I have a very um, people-oriented server um, and serving personality. And mm-hmm. I discovered it, or like I was aware of it early on, and I I thrive in an environment where I can uh, help and where I can see others doing well. And so I think it was a pretty great match for for me. And I'm a little like I I like no nonsense of approach. So if it's efficient, right. if there's a way to improve and, you know, figure out a, a way to do this process better, then I want to be the one who comes up with that plan. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I, I, I can't imagine the story ends there, but I'm curious uh, for hearing um, what is that thread from that, that, that place in, in where you were working operations of a hotel in Kiev, what did you learn that I'm going to say was probably missing or that needed attention that you said that kind of went in and stuck inside of you and grew like a seed that has informed you, whether it was the hotel of Kiev or the entire, the entire, the entire journey um, that has brought you to where you're at now, what is it that you are solving today? that you saw it was not being, has not been solved over that journey that you went through? Ooh, that's a really great question. And um, I think, so one thing I will say is for, for me, and also it kind of echoes back to working with my students, but also working with different clients the 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 one thing i noticed in almost all of my jobs and but it kind of solidified back in in kiev was people really want to do well i think that there's a there's a fundamental and it kind of aligns with what i believe in in people anyway, like my worldview is that people are fundamentally good and, or given a chance, they would choose the, the, the right or better or more ethical, um, option. And it really is about harnessing that and, and working with it and how I noticed for the first time then how organizations have a power to, um, either kind of turn off that valve and people are disenchanted and they don't want to do their best work because mm-hmm. of the, you know, sort of the 
constraints of the organization and or you can kind of create a space, create an environment where the better comes out. So I think that was something that was not clear, like up till that point, I didn't have that real life experience. And I know it sounds funny. It's like, well, you've already been working for, you know, eight years somewhere. Um, but, but it never really landed until then, to be honest. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is like a, a lot of the leaders, a leader's job is creating an environment where people can thrive to be their best selves and to really gain meaning and purpose from their work. So I want to make sure, we, because I know part of your journey is moving into education, moving from you're working in hospitality, then you move on to become a teacher. What was that transition like and what drew you to teaching students? So I uh, came to this job somewhat by accident, um, but I also don't really believe in accidents. I, I, I think that you're ready to see I'm a big fan of understanding how we filter information. So we, we see yeah. what we want to see and, you know, we filter everything else out. So I've been, uh, uh, I've been looking for a change um, somewhat at that point, because I did not want to stay in the corporate environment. Right. And I was offered a um, guest lecturing one quarter and um, the first few weeks, I was like, yeah, this is it. I love being back in the classroom. I enjoy this so much. And it, it's a perfect, it's like the best job for me because it marries this practical experience. I've been on the floor. I've been the manager. I know what you know these decisions need to be and how hard they can be. And at the same time, I have academic background and I, I also can work with, like, I think my personality also opens the space for students to be comfortable talking to me about, okay, this is the situation at work. How do I navigate this? And so bringing those together and being the catalyst, like I, I am in education because I believe in learning and education as a way to, and this sounds super tried, but bear with me to really change the world. Like right. tectonic changes are possible if we learn about ourselves and about each other. So it's a little. No, that's, no, that's, no, that's, that's great. Fantastic. I mean, I, I'm, this is a question for both of you and this might be tangential, but just, I, I thought it, what are your thoughts on the, on this bifurcation of education and then getting stuff done? kind of world like you learn now you leave learning and now you do and there does seem to be an artificial separation there because you were talking about tectonic shifts come from education so you stop learning when you go to organization so that means no more tectonic shifts so just i would say that's a failure within the organization if that happens i mean lots of work but i do think there is a there is a structural separation of those two worlds I'm not saying there isn't bleeding in between those two worlds too. And it typically seems to be in the government with its relationship with the universities, but (laughs) I can guarantee in my world, it's, you know, you, you're, you're pulling teeth to say, Hey, I want to go learn some other stuff. What can I do? You have to jump through some massive hoops. They have to get approval from everybody. It's not that easy. 
it's there and i just want to is, is there is that a false dichotomy is there is, can there be a world that 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 might bring those things together a little better so i certainly hope so and that would be yeah. that would be what i would like to see and i will i will raise you joda in the in that travesty which is i think that you're right that we go to school and we learn. And once we are out, we're now focused on the actual job. And you may learn more about that job, but there's not necessarily this push for ongoing learning. And don't even, you know, get me started on, on HR and learning and development <laughs> as a, as a function. And, and in, you know, fairness, it's not even fair to the HR folk because they are up to their ear years in, in like compliance, uh, you know, protocols, but another travesty that I would also pair up with this is, and that's very dear to my heart because it, that's what brings my clients in is this idea that somehow the moment you walk into your office, you are putting on your work hat mm -hmm. and you completely lose and leave the personal self outside the door. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea that the personal world that you carry with you all the time needs to shut down and stop being so you can be your professional self. And I, I find it just so destructive because we, there's something to be said about civility and, you know, like, but Essentially, we are um, self-censoring or silencing things that might be really great, and we don't want to bring them with us because there is this sort of cultural, cultural um, and historical expectation that we are we're not ourselves when we're at work. And I find yeah, that it's kind of like that show that was on on Apple TV mm -hmm. recently. Right. What was that show called, Joda? Uh, I forget. It starts with an S. But the Severance. Yeah, the yeah. I love that show. It's so weird and so great. I think you just described it right because he comes in when everyone comes into work, they kind of go down the elevator and they're kind of suddenly turned off, like their human selves are. That's right. Their external selves are separated from the. The, the selves that they bring into the organization to do their daily jobs. That's, yeah. Yeah. You, you literally did describe that movie. That's, <laughs> I, I wonder, <laughs> and, and so many people, so it's interesting. I mean, we, we've talked about this all the time. We had, we had, we had a conversation. One of our earliest podcasts was meaning. Was it, was it meaning? I think it was a meaning, yeah, meaning and, and purpose and work, and purpose yeah. of work. And it was a good conversation. Um, and one of the questions we posed was, do, does your organization owe you meaning? Are you supposed to expect meaning or do you bring meaning or is it a dance between the two? And, and so many people go to work and like, Oh, I'm not going to need this anymore. Or more, even worse, even worse, I won't need this anymore and put that aside. And then they're not living for a portion of their day for the most part. And so and, for those of you listening on the audio oh, uh, version of this, Joda <laughs> just said, removed his brain for part of that uh, diatribe <laughs> and then his heart for the second part. For the second part. So. Right, 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 right. Which I would say is probably a more try. I think, I would think, Hannah, you would agree that 
ditching your heart for your job is probably the biggest tragedy one could probably do, right? Is is, is that something you're is that something you're kind of talking about here? That's exactly right. I think that it's a travesty to expect people to not be themselves. And back to your question about purpose and meaning, to me, it also sort of sits with in the same space as, again, the storytelling and sense-making. Yeah. And I think that they are meeting at this spot where like the Venn diagram would be, you know, um, the organization giving you the, the meaning, but then at the same time, it's your damn job to figure out what your meaning is, you know? And I think that there's something about more and more people falling. And I see that with my students and the, and the younger generation, there's a lot of expectations you give me, you, you know, figure it out. Where is the meaning here? As opposed to, I better figure it out for myself, or I better, you know, ask for things myself. Um, there's this, when I work with, with people, but, but also in general, like I think for ourselves and for our friends, the rejection of victimhood needs to be the starting point. Like we have ability, we have uh, sort of the, we should want to have meeting meanings and, and, and purpose and search for it and take it as a quest, right? Like that's your, that's your real life quest to know what your, why you're doing this. Why, you know, why do you go to work? And so often it helps the, to shift the perspective, yeah, and I think it's also a process of self-discovery too, right? To a point you made earlier in the, this conversation, you know, we're not always aware of what we do and maybe there are no accidents. Maybe the, it was not just happenstance that Hannah Gala ended up as a faculty member at South Seattle College teaching students that maybe you weren't super conscious of that being a desire, but maybe in the back of your mind that was informing that path subconsciously. And and, fig, and it makes me wonder if we're really giving students and people the tools they need to be able to construct meaning and purpose, you know, um, effectively. It's a complex world, right? I mean, it's really complex. It'd be really nice if there was like some sort of complexity framework that perhaps we could <laughs> leverage. Jonah's right? the master of convoluted uh, segues. <laughs> <laughs> or I don't know, acrobatic segues. Maybe that'd be a better. So let's talk about complexity theory. <laughs> and David Stoden and Kunevin. We've talked about this before on the show uh, a little bit, but you know, we do work in these complex environments where it is hard for people to construct meaning. And so so how do you, you you keep coming back to storytelling as a mechanism for constructing meaning in, in complex environments? How does storytelling help us, you know, produce meaning and purpose in, in a complex environment? So it both helps us and it also betrays us. Um, and that's a that's an aspect of of sense making and, and storytelling in particular that that I find fascinating. Um, I will start with so the 
the the complexity to me, you know, and when you look at the Kinevin uh, model and Dave Snowden's work uh, so far, it's like okay, so there's there's the there's the simple, the com- complicated, and the complex and chaotic, and the, and the complex is where you have the the known the unknown, right? Yeah, and you have the um. Was it Donald Rumsfeld who said that? The known unknown. Oh, yeah, yeah. Unknown, unknown. But there are also unknown unknowns. So, you know, you you don't have the the best practice. You have a good practice and or you might figure out your own. And and what's really interesting is I was watching um, uh, Jennifer... Uh, what's her name? Uh, Jennifer Garvey Berger. She's a she's a she works with Snowden and, and has done uh, some great work there. And in one of the uh, seminars, she showed this video from like 1944, and it's the simplest animation you've ever seen in your life. And it essentially has a. Um, it's it's not a it's it's a square maybe and and then there's a bigger triangle and a smaller triangle and a dot and they kind of move in the in the box and out and for those who are only listening i'm just like madly uh throwing my hands gesticulating around. and drawing these figures in the air <laughs> but just just imagine there's you know bigger a triangle and a and a smaller triangle and a and a dot and they're moving in and out and sometimes they circle around and one gets in and then the the dot gets in etc and it's probably under a minute and number one when I saw it I was like this cannot be from forty four like how did we do such a beautiful animation back then but um, it it's it looks like Tetris a little but anyway the the point is. They showed it uh, back in the day. The animation was conceived by psychologists who were showing it to people. And I think it was like 89% of people who saw that felt that the big triangle was the bully and the small triangle was helping the, the dot to escape the, the trappings of the, uh, of the box. And, and that's one of the, um, one of the downsides of storytelling and sense-making, um, on one hand, it helps us and like, you know, in a complex, when you don't know, you have to go and you have to try and you have to fail to, to get the data, right? Like there's no failure, only feedback kind of thing. Yeah, so mm-hmm. that's, that's one of our mantras. Yeah, yeah. And um, that changed my life, by the way. Like, it's no, it, it, when people realize that it, it changes everybody's lives. It's a, yeah. it's huge. So I think you can see how just shifting and telling that story, that one sentence, right, can completely change your approach. Um, and I can give you examples of, a like I worked with a woman, this might be a little bit of tangent, but, but it's a, it's a, I worked with a woman who, when I met her, she just ended like a seven year old relationship. She was in a free fall, right? Like 
the identity and the, like all of it was kind of uh, all over Falling the part. Yeah. And, and through the work um, we discovered some of the narratives that she's, you know, like she drew value from relationships and, and the sort of the outside world, giving her validation, et cetera, et cetera. But over the, the, the sort of course of working with her, she started talking to herself in a third, as if she was talking to a friend and kind of went through that tool as kind of um, building the, the self-worth and self-value from within. And it like that storytelling helped her tremendously, right? Like she suddenly was able to see herself and the, the value she built from within, as opposed to being told and being appreciated or not appreciated. And, you know, like she had herself to rely on and that propelled her to gave her that motivation and purpose. Right. Right. And, and so that's true, right? Like in a, in a world where things you don't know, and, and again, there's no best practice and what works for her might not work for everybody. And like, but what I get from what you're saying is, is kind of twofold, Hannah, and definitely I 100% an agreement with it. If the thing about narratives, right, and complexity. So we live in this complex world where there are all these variables interacting with one another. It's hard to make sense of what some people call the shimmering landscape of reality, right? And storytelling to me is, is an evolutionary function, right? It, it's a, we've evolved to be storytellers. It's hardwired in our brains to construct narratives and stories to make sense of the world. And so there has to be a purpose to it. And you know, when you're dealing with a complex environment, it could be filled with bias, as in the case of that triangle animation where you might be misinterpreting it just because you have a bias that, oh, the bigger thing in this cartoon is the bully. So that's the, the how I'm going to construct reality based on what I'm witnessing, when it could be a, a completely different situation if you looked at it through a different lens. But at the same time, you know, uh, the story that that woman constructed about her, her own identity and self actually became a tool for her to tap into her own ability to motivate herself and, and find meaning in, in her life. So you just have to be careful with the stories, right? And I think that that's where um, we're... So to piggyback on what you were saying we are hardwired to tell the stories. The problem is we're kind of crappy storytellers. And I think Tom Waits, has a, Tom Waits has a quote. I think I'm going to find that quote while you continue to talk about Oh yeah, it's we're one of my being favorite destroyed quotes. I know by bad, bad storytellers or something like that. Yeah, yeah no, it, find that quote. It's on my wall in my office. Otherwise I'd read it. The, it's a great quote. It, it's true. We are shitty storytellers, right? Like that's just a fact. And the, what it is, is that's because we, the, our sympathetic neurosystem is just, you know, fight or flight. We need to be, we yeah. need to be responding. And so, you know, when you are for 
you know, thousands of years driven and, and kind of dragged by the system that tells you, okay, I'm scanning the environment. Like the amygdala goes, you know, scanning, 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 and five times a second, that's the speed five times a second, your brain, actually your body scans the environment. And the stories we tell ourselves is, you know, fight flight. Like that's only then the parasympathetic, you know, sometimes um, kind of we get jerked out of that. And the sympathetic nervous system just knows the two or actually four modes. And that's a bad, you know, it's like, we're just not prepared physiologically yeah. for the complexities I mean, of we think we're rational beings, but I mean, to your point, the amygdala and your uh, limbic system have an emotional reaction to a situation first, and then you rationalize the narrative after, right? And we have this naive conception that we're objective in our narr- in how we construct our narratives, but... So you have to have research. You have to have checks to check yourself that the narratives that you're constructing are actually accurate. And that's where, I guess, the scientific method comes in, right? Hannah, have you heard of uh, a Carl Weick or Weick? Uh, W-E-I-C-K. Dan and I could never figure out what, how to pronounce that last name. Have you heard of him? I don't think so. Interesting guy. We, we're not too deep on him, but we did a show on him. Um, and he has a... <clears throat> I can't remember. It's it's basically uh, sense making theory uh, around organizations, uh-huh. and and one of the interesting things that uh, the takeaways that we got from his from his from his thinking was that we are living in what's what he qualified as a post industrial world, which is different from the industrial world. And when he and it was really important for him to make those distinctions for leadership perspectives, where in the industrial world, leadership was you were looking to the leadership for answers. Like literally, like literally, the leadership was going to be moving the ball, or you know, where in a post-industrial world, leadership is actually there to make meaning. Leadership is meant to tell the stories, to get alignment, and everybody else is actually self-actualized to produce and make decisions. What are your thoughts on that? I hundred percent agree with that, and I think that it's um, it's a role of the leader not only to make the the sort of meaning for the organization, whether that's a team or a large organization, but it's also, I think the, the job of the, either the leader and, or the coach to help. Like I had a really hard time. I'm not going to lie with the term coach. And I was like, what can I possibly, it's just such a weird term. And I don't know. And do I have what it takes to be a coach? And, you know, this is years ago, but I had a lot of self-doubt about that. And I thought, how can I, you know, like people need to know themselves. And only when I started working with, with people, I realized how essential that role is because you can ask the right questions. You can navigate, you can, you can like people will come up with their own meaning and with their own purpose but you can help them sort of kind of focus and or help with the que- with the questions they need to be asking mm-hmm. to figure that out for themselves. So you're not telling people what to do, but by by having the like you know in at, in athletics and in the athletics and you um, 
you had some, uh, before we started recording, you had some um, sports metaphor, which my students will tell you, I am absolutely the worst when it comes to sports metaphor. I am failing <laughs> every single time, but I love them nevertheless. And um, the, you know, to bring up that, the coach is not playing basketball better than you, but they can kind of, you know, figure out how to make you the best basketball player out there. And, and so right. to me, the leader in that context is the coach. Like I think that you, you are in a relationship and it's much more from transactional, which is what it used to be in the industrial uh, time. We are now in the sort of relational uh, context where the meaning is also made for those people you work with like it has to it has to incorporate them right rather than just i have this vision and i'm just going to go and push for it yeah you know wow. i think this is a good good transition point because what you said when you talk about transactional leadership versus what some would call that relational dimension being transformational leadership i, I think of james mcgregor burns and his book uh on leadership which won the uh, Pulitzer Prize, I think, in 78. And he was talking about these same things, but in the context of political leadership, right, and presidents and heads of state. And he profiles like Roosevelt and a lot of other, I think Martin Luther King, a lot of other um, political leaders and um, and how important it is for you know a transformational leader to to help people construct meaning around you know, what, whatever cause or political action they're trying to take. Um, and it's interesting, you know, one of the things I think from your perspective, coming from a, a, a space where you, it's on the boots coaching and training as far as middle management and how to run a hotel and hospitality, but you also do a lot of consulting with CEOs and also do political, you know, consultation or training with, people in the United Nations even, which are at a higher mm -hmm. level of political leadership. What are some things that you see are, that are common between those folks who are working on the, on the ground floor of day-to-day -day leadership in, in smaller organizations versus the political level of leadership where you have maybe a broader perspective or, or kind of up in the stratosphere, you know, in a sense? Uh, and what are, the, what are the differences and the commonalities between those approaches to leadership? So one thing, oh, it's such a big question. Uh, yeah, sorry. I can get convoluted too. <laughs> yes. I'm just trying to get harder. I think, I think we, that was a bulleted four-part question in there. Yeah. I, <laughs> this is your dissertation defense. <laughs> I'll, I'll answer only what I want to answer, just to stay within the political you know, realm and context. Um Here's, here's some of the things that I think are really fascinating is in the past, it was sort of, we took it for granted that when you are a, let's say you have a restaurant, even if you have 15 of them, like you have a product, you have a business, um, the business model is pretty clear and the stakeholders are pretty clear, right? Like person comes in, orders a steak, pays you money. There's, there's, you know, and you are doing great if you're making money. And if you're not, then you're not doing great and you're out. Um, with the organizations 
such as political parties and and like political bodies such as the UN or intergovernmental organizations. I did a lot of work there um, in my previous lives. Uh, life the the you kind of have a an added layer of difficulty because your stakeholders are not as clear the outcomes are not as defined because you know are you making progress are you completing outcomes that you set for yourselves um, and then that's on the on the organizational, but then you people I know, you know, working in these structures are also pulled because the member states might have very different um, agenda than the overall organization. And then on top of that, they are trying to preserve their own, you know, livelihood and and they they want to move up in the hierarchy most of them. So then, you know, how do you navigate that space? But I was going to say the, the trend is not for these organizations to go the route of clarity and more clarity and more transparency. It's the other way around. And now even the, even the people who are, you know, running the shop and, and having customers and, and sort of simple business model, they are moving to, more in that space where the outcomes are not as clear and maybe your stakeholders are not, we're moving more, especially when it comes to like global organizations where you're entering this world of there is a political agenda. There is a, you know, sort of this online world where, or virtual world where you also have to navigate what you say and how you say it and, and, the people in your neighborhood are now across the globe. So I think that that yeah. to me has been really interesting to observe. And one thing, you know, that, that I will also bring up is when we, when we talked before we sat down to record, um, you know, you brought up the, well, you, you grew up in the, in the communist Czechoslovakia and, and I, um, it's interesting because, I worked at the office of President uh, Havel when... I, oh, Vaclav Havel. Yeah. For those I, who don't know, he's also a great playwright. <laughs> wonderful playwright. He was, It was actually my first um, political job, although I was, you know, doing way more um, faxing and, and uh, copying than... Um, than I thought I will ever in my life. But that's a different story. The um, When I was at the president's office, um, I... Uh, and so for the audience who might not know, Vaclav Havel was a dissident during the communist era, was a playwright, you know, and used his playwriting to, to kind of critique the communist regime. Kind of, I think he was imprisoned for a while, too. He was too. in jail for seven years. Con- yeah, nine. and then when... The when the communism fell in Czechoslovakia and the Berlin Wall fell, Vaclav Havel was elected president of Czechoslovakia. And I think he served two terms or something like that. Yes. Um, and he, um, yes. And, and what I would say, he has been known in the history primarily as the sort of um, peacemaker um, and intellectual in the position he didn't ask for, but you know, the time called for it. Um, the sort of unwilling hero as, as, as he would say. And 
what I find really fascinating is he, I, I recently, like a couple of years ago, reread his essay. Uh, he wrote this thing, uh, The Power of Powerless. And it's a really, I think it was like maybe 77, like maybe. Um, and The Power of Powerless essentially tells you the, or it gave this intellectual um, framework to what what then the Polish Solidarita and and others you know um, take uh, took to kind of as a um, as ideological um, backbone. But what I find super interesting and fascinating is what he's talking about is the is the relationship between an individual and a system. And that is relevant to our conversation here because you asked about, you know, the, the sort of international world and, and the, and larger organizations. And what I, when you read the power of powerless, what he's saying is he gives an example and says, okay, so let's say there's a, like a vegetable um, store um, grocer, right? Like a green grocer. And he gets his vegetables and fruits from a whole, from the wholesale or from the warehouse. And every now and then, then throw in a, they throw in a poster and you need to put it up in your window. And it's something like benign, like workers of the world unite and the grocer puts it up, not because he believes that the workers of the world should unite. Like, this is already a communist country and anybody who wants to be unionized and united is already united. What are you talking about? Like, I, I don't, you know, from his perspective, that's a meaningless slogan and it is meaningless slogan for, for the time and place, but it has that deeper meaning, which is you are doing something that, you know, you're not invested in your integrity is not in it. But you do it because if you put up that poster, you will be left alone and nobody's going to bother you. And it's and he basically says you have a power. And what he describes in that essay, which I find heartbreaking, is the when you do put up that poster, a part of your soul dies because you are basically saying I am compliant. You know, I I am compliant. I am part of the system. I am part of the problem. And I would rather do that and go back to my family than do something that would be insignificant as a, as a heroic act, which is not to put up, you know, the, the poster. And yet I can bring myself to do it. And, and, and anybody who walks by that store now knows that, you had to, you know, like they got you, you're, you're, you're part of the problem. Yeah. So it becomes compelled behavior and it's, it's very insidious because it catches you off guard. And then before, you know, I mean, there's, I'm going to take the slippery slope statement and then there's that, where does it end kind of thing, I think is what we're talking about, but you don't need it to go too far because you're saying there's already a soul crushing aspect just at that level without having to go any further. But I also was going to say, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go on. Just to finish, I think that what's interesting is 
we all find ourselves in that position sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. Like when, uh, not to be uh, controversial too much, but like the... Oh no, our audience tells us we need to be more controversial. Unconscious bias trainings. We know they don't work. We know they don't work. This is like, you know, one research after another. And like, in a way, they're almost up there with the Leninist, you know, dialectic where you go like, it's a circular argument. If it's unconscious, how are we going to, you know, like, it's just, it's so dumb. And yet they're everywhere. And people don't feel like standing up and saying, this is bullshit. I'm not doing it. What is the, you know, what are we getting? And that's because it became this new, and and what I find super interesting is then me personally being in that environment where you go, I grew up in a country where we wouldn't say certain things at, at, you know, in public that we could say at home. And I moved here and we're like, I'm the last person who would bash America. Okay. Just let's start there. Yeah. I'm a big fan and I love my new home and I don't want to sound ungrateful. However, we do this. A lot of people do this and it's a problem because it's, it's destroying your soul. It, it's really hard to maintain personal integrity. And I think that that has been one of the most um, interesting aspects of, of working with people who, who are trying to stay um, true to themselves and their values and remain employed <laughs> and do what, you know, yeah. make a difference. That's hard. I think you've you've kind of segued into 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 our, our final topic here. To well, I just wanna, if I would, before you go there, Joe, no, I, well, well, I, I wasn't going to go there yet because I was going to I was actually going to say though that there is yeah there is this there uh, it, just the fact that you had to say I'm appreciative of this country and I like this country it to me speaks volumes because I I hate the fact that you even have to do that because we know you like this country. You're here, right? But there's this compelled speech that occurs because the distinctions to be able to criticize and then not be, not be harassed as being a, uh, 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 against it. You know, in my field, I'm constantly, I'm going to use the word criticize, but that's what I'm doing, but criticizing products. And you have to be delicate to the people you're criticizing too, because it's their baby or whatever. And if you do it in the wrong way, they're going to think you're, 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 you're poo-pooing all over their ideas. And maybe you are, but you're doing it for the right reasons. You want that idea to, 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 to thrive. And so when you're, when you are critique, uh, I hope people critique this country regularly, like spirit, spirit, because if it needs heart to be taken up to be replaced with new heart, let's do it because let's make this thing work. And it's just, I think just the fact that one has to, even I, oh, I love this country. I do, I do. And I do like this country, but it sucks that I feel a tinge. I have to say that. And I think that's also kind of speaking to what you're saying. Well, I'm going to bring in another playwright into this conversation. Ionesco's uh, play, a Rhinoceros. When this topic always comes up, it's the play I kind of go to. And it's a play based on, uh, inspired by the rise of Nazi Germany. And, and also, he's a Czech playwright too, Ionesco. He's from Czechoslovakia too, I believe. No, um, I think he's Romanian. Or had some roots. Oh, is it Romanian? You're right. It's Romanian. Um, anyways, he... Thumbnail sketch, it's about individualism, right? You have this one character, Beringer, 
everyone around him is transforming into these rhinoceroses and rampaging throughout town and destroying civilization. And he is the at the end of the play, he's the last person to resist. And during the counterculture movement in the 1960s, that play was revisited. Gene Wilder did a movie uh, because it was about that that idea of individualism. Um, and yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I work in a lot of the same environments as you, Hannah, and I feel feel you know I I've and maybe this is a Generation X in me. I've never been a joiner. Right, I've never joined. You know, I dropped out of the Cub Scouts when I was a kid. I didn't really enjoy playing softball. You know, I've, I haven't really belonged to too many clubs. Um, you know, I just, you know, I'm not someone who would put the American flag in my front door. Although, How you know, because you. I just resist that too. Right. Um, but so, so when these rituals come up and the, these conformist things come up around an ideology. I'm naturally going to resist because that's who I am, right? And the more I feel like I'm compelled to participate in them, the more I actually resist. And I know, you know, people say, well, are people, people aren't speaking up around these issues? Or are they just being quiet? And I think the answer is most people, to your point, are just being quiet, <laughs> keeping their heads down to protect their jobs because they, you know, they don't want to participate in some of these conversations because they, they don't want to lose their individuality and identity to the, this collective movement. And there's very little reward potentially to speak up. There's not a lot of value. Probably. Oh, it's, it's, it's downfall. It's yeah, downfall. It's, yeah, but to your point, it's because you can't critique it. An idea, when an ideology becomes so rigid that you become a rhinoceros, right? Which is a, a manifestation of complete rigidity, right? Um, how do you critique that? Right, you're not going to change anyone's mind, um, and you just might get a, a big uh, horn through your chest. <laughs> so, so, Anna, how do we do this? What do we do? <laughs> so, I, I will, I will say this. I think that what's really interesting is when when we talk about tribes and communities and belonging to a larger group. The I think that not thinking about the the space where where you presumably both grew up, like America as a as a you know as a place, and it's n I know so many Americans for whom this never comes up because why would it? And to me, it's actually a, a sign. And we do trainings on this with we did this training on this um, with some students back in Europe and also with UN. Um, that's a great privilege that you have, you know, like in the, in the, in the right. right sense of the word, you don't have to think about it. You, you don't, right? Like you were born into a place where you won't go to jail because you criticize the president, right? Like, but there, there are people who, you know, in my son's school, I would tell, I would probably assume that maybe more than a half of the parents were not born here. And for them, they, that's something that they would talk about a lot, right? Like the, the, the benefits of being in this, in this space. And then I lost the train of my thought because I wanted to comment on something else you said about um, not, not speaking up or speaking up. Um, and I lost it. Yeah. Just keeping your head down, you know, letting it go by and just not, not participating in the conversation. 
Oh, I know what it was. I think that what it was, what it is for me is anytime you're not allowed to ask questions, something stinks, right? The, the system is when you don't allow for dissent, whether you're a leader and you have people in your team who are afraid to to give you feedback and or say, I don't, I don't think this is the right way. Like that's the fastest way to rigidity and, and sort of inflexibility. Yeah. And, and I think that, I don't know. I mean, I, I have some idea what we're doing wrong with like academia and, and, and elsewhere, but I think that we're headed into a space where even asking questions is considered uh, disloyal to the idea of uh, whatever the idea is and yeah, to the ideology in, in particular. And I think that's, that's where I worry a lot about this uh, Republic. Dan, what is that? Yeah, no, you said I, that quote before about dissent and power. What is that? I don't know. I you said you can, things. you can tell, <laughs> you said those who are, you can tell, always tell who's in power by the, by the ones you, because you can't, criticize them or something like that right oh yeah so, yeah some, you said something like it was you, you said something yeah like maybe in a phone conversation yeah phone conversation <laughs> you know and i think there's and so it doesn't have to be a person it, actually, be an, it can be an idea gonna, or a, inside inside ball with right, right. i think that's actually a, a quote from scott roush <laughs> okay all right but i mean a history it, professor at North it doesn't have to be a person Center right College. it can be an idea a uh, philosophy uh, a running sort of um yeah, the thing you can't Motive criticize thing. is the thing that's in power, right? Yeah, that in has power, the power. You know, and I think, and, and I, then think, I think people need to think about what is it that they can't criticize right now, and that you're going to it'll reveal a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to make sure that we uh, touch on because we're coming to the end. Um, that we touch on um, <laughs> the question that you had, Joda, that you wanted to wrap up with. Right, I think me, it feeds into it this. Totally right? feeds into it. And actually, speaking of not being able to take criticism well. <laughs> uh i think we, i'll be the first one to do I'll, i'm gonna use the t-word uh so hannah dan and i were talking about talking about talking about uh donald trump um as a provocative show um, um for a later episode for a later episode, episode and we are uh we want to do. We, we, we think we think it's interesting. We have a reason to want to talk because we, we do. We, he's all, you know we talk about him in various. Joda wants to talk about him. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 But but the idea is this: that we we read an article of this gentleman who wrote, and and the article was a critique of Donald Trump, Donald Trump, and and a true critique, like critiquing his leadership style. And he was looking at things that he thought were effective and things that were not effective. He wasn't necessarily saying if they were effective for goodness, but they were effective. They got things hmm. done. And and so he was kind of qualifying. And, and Dan goes, did you see the comments? Like the very first comment was, can't believe you're telling, uh, trying to find effective leadership out of Hitler or something like that. And so talking about and, and, and we wanted to kind of like have a conversation around maybe having a conversation about Donald Trump like can we have a conversation about Donald Trump without without the world uh, what imploding and us imploding getting canceled. in on us you know <laughs> uh, what are you what, yeah, what are your thoughts on that so hmm I sorry my my chair is squeaking I hope the mic will not pick up on that um I'm not the, hearing it I'm sorry yeah, I'm not, not hearing it. So yeah. okay, good. So the 
I think that we absolutely, the, the, we absolutely, or we, you can absolutely do that and should do it. And the reason why I think we should is the following. The, there shouldn't be a topic we are not allowed to talk about. That's number one. Number two, if a half of this country sees something positive or is willing to drop their vote for this person, we want to know why. What is it that we're like the other side is not doing? What is it that, you know, is, is attractive for people? And what are some of the issues that he was able to not solve, but talk about that, you know, people were like, you know what, I would rather trust this dude than, than somebody else. And I, so there's, there's never like, if we walk away and we don't talk about it, it's nobody's learning anything. And the comments, you know, let's face it. This is the most, I don't, I don't think it's the most polarized uh, we've ever been, but we absolutely are, are living in this, you know, um, what is the term keyboard warriors, right? Like keyboard yeah. warriors are my favorite. It's like, you haven't read it. You have an opinion um, that you formulated within three seconds. And, and, you know, now you're going to tell the world. And what I think is the huge, the reason why podcasts are so popular is because you create the space where we can talk for an hour and a half and, and we can kind of noodle the nuances and, and, and maybe go back and, it's to me, that is why some of the podcasters that are wildly popular have their, their shows an hour minimum, right? Because somehow people understand subconsciously or otherwise that you need a little more time than 140, you know, signs on Twitter or whatever it is. I don't really know what it is. Um, to convey an idea or to talk. And I think that that is also tied to our own ability to allow for, like people are not allowed to fail and say stupid shit anymore. Like, I think that's problematic that you are not allowed the grace to learn and say, you know what? I didn't know enough. I know more now. Can we move on? Like the fact that, you know, mm -hmm. we're like so into digging into people's past and it's like not, a modern day witch hunt uh, and you know big yeah. time and i think that's problematic and and it's not good for us so i think you should do it all right all right well, we got one vote <laughs> all right well looks no, like we're... i think we should do it too i mean i just I, you're not alone I'm, I'm there with you but we're just we're just we don't we're we're thinking of titling the show what, what, what's our title um since and signals last episode is that, is that what <laughs> Sense of signal destroys itself. Destroys itself. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about Trump. Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree with everything you say. I think we should do the episode. I, you know, I think in this political climate, though, I feel like Trump has lost a lot of his cachet. I think those people who still supported him are out there. Uh, and I don't think they're all racist. I don't think they're all um, the, the despicables, as Hillary Clinton said, right? No. Um, I By think no they're... 
they're, yeah, they're, it's very again getting back to complexity. If you're voting for Trump, you're, you're probably desperate. Mostly is what you are. Um, I'm assuming. Or or it could be a, me, a multiple variables that could yeah. be influencing somebody to do it. Um, and there's also probably evolutionary biological reasons people are doing That's it right. too right and um, and for, it is and, complex and, and bad reasons too we'll, we'll talk about that yeah, and but, bad reasons and for not good reasons too for sure yeah but i'm willing to have the conversation i just don't think my resistance to having the episode would be just i don't think he has the influence anymore that he had eight years ago or four years ago right that his his announcement to run for president kind of went off with a whimper and he's not getting as much press coverage he doesn't seem to be doing any rallies i will say you know. this i'll say this and to hannah's point and that is he's a representation he's 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 a manifestation of more characters like him to come if we don't do yeah. the changes that han is talking about and if we don't identify his the, the things that he did well and then you're not going to be able to address them you know, that's that's my thinking. well. I think that's part of one of the reasons I, I want to do this podcast, and one of the reasons I've become more and more interested in, in leadership theory is because of Donald Trump, in a sense. Because to me, he is a symptom of a failure of leadership. Right? No matter what you think of his policies, I, I think we can all agree he's as successful as he was on a na- on the national stage in, in securing one term as president. Overall. You'd have to look at the man and say, well, maybe in a situational context, going back to situational leadership, maybe he was fine in real estate and commercial there real, we go. real estate. We'll frame and that there- show with situational leadership and Donald Trump. It'll be a situational leadership Donald Trump episode. But on the political stage where you have, as, uh, as, as Hannah has said, more ambiguity, he's not as effective in that environment. Yeah, yeah, probably so. Some would argue that he was pretty successful internationally. So okay. I, I've, you know, and I've been traveling um, quite a bit and that has been really interesting to see what trickles into the like European world and, and Asia and how people perceive that choice and his persona abroad. And like that to me is also an aspect that would be worth discussing. All right, so we're a minute to clean. I'm gonna I'm gonna proposition this that I think the three of us might have a good conversation here, and that we we the three of us come back and t- do a Donald Trump episode. I think that's if, <laughs> if you're into it. I think we should do it um, with tongue in cheek, perhaps, but also very seriously. That, that's yeah. because I, obviously there's things to be had and discussed, and I would love to learn more about that. Um, the stuff you've learned as you go around it, it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, and so that would be my that would be my take. So, yeah, I would like to do so it. Call- I don't think it is tongue in cheek. Like I think that there's time for serious discussion, even though it's three people True. who are not necessarily you know who haven't studied his every move. But I think that we collectively have enough to have somewhat serious conversation about this. True. All right, I agree. I agree. Yeah. We'll do it. So uh, I know we're at the end. So some call to action stuff, Hannah. Um, well, before that, <laughs> what should we take away from this episode? What's our summer? Summer? What are the key points that we've taken away from this conversation? So we, I hope that it somewhat was communicated and and 
correct me if I'm wrong, but one thing we talked about was the uh, sort of narratives and self talk that may be and, and frame shifting that might be very helpful and also uh, somewhat hindering our own progress. And so this is where I would like plug my own experience as a coach and say, I have people coming to me when they're either stuck and, or they're confused about what their purpose is, what, where, where to move next. And it's the self mastery and kind of looking inwards to, to find, yeah. uh, navigate the outside. Right. And, and so when somebody comes to me, I am able to work with them and kind of, um, was it Lao Tzu who said the, the, the person who he, he controls, um, others is powerful, but who he controls himself is mightier still. And I, I think yeah. that's the, that's the key. Like we can actually even pulling the power of powerless, like individually, we have a great power to, to shift our perspective, to shift our storytelling, to, to be more aligned. And, and it is with the help of others sometimes, um, either professional and otherwise to get there. And I think that's ultimately what we want to do. Right. So we talked about that. Um, we talked about learning and how companies are sometimes failing us because they believe that we are different. There's the travesty of you finish your college or, you know, university and you get the degree and that's, that's it for learning, which that's demented. <laughs> no. <laughs> and that's a failure of the organization and the, investing in their L and D departments. But I think that it's also that they, you know, it's so often on us as employees to just go and be like, I need this. I want this. Can we make that happen? And, you know, very often the answer is yes. It's not that hard to get things funded if you if you want it badly enough, and if you're like arguing, you know, um, yeah, campaigning for it, advocating for it enough. Yeah. What other so, take homes? So, where can people contact you, Hannah? How how can if somebody wants to uh, hire you as a coach or a leadership consultant or? Uh, poach you from South Seattle College to be a faculty member. <laughs> How can they get reach you? You can find me on LinkedIn and or under the Leadership Associates. It's um, it's a consultancy based in Vienna, and um, I am I'm heading their their coaching corporate coaching program, and I am in the process of uh, launching my new website. So it's not up yet, but but people can easily find me. Uh, through LinkedIn or uh, or the Leadership Associates. Nice. And we'll have all that in the show notes uh, on this episode. And so, Hannah, thank you for for engaging. I think this is the longest episode we've ever done. <laughs> it is the longest, but it also it was warranted to be long. It was an excellent, excellent time with you, Hannah. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Yep.